0: Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our discussion, we wanna say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Kent P, Angel M, Mike G, and Zlatan S. Returning to the show, It's been a while. Mark Chalmers, President and CEO of Energy Fuels, the dominant U.S. focused publicly listed, production-ready uranium company. Energy Fuels is also entering the rare earth element processing business as a supplement to its core uranium focus. Energy Fuels is a uranium portfolio company at Smith Weekly Research. The company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol UU, UU and also on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol EFR. Mr. Chalmers, welcome back, and uh, where are you spending New Year's?
1: Well, it's good to be back, Andrew. Um, I'm just spending New Year's in uh, Denver, Colorado, so um not able to go too many places, at least outside the United States, so that's where I'm at.
0: Well, let's kick things off here, Mark, with uh, your quick view of the uranium market at this point and what 2021 looks like for the sector.
1: Look, I think um, sentiment for uranium is improving fairly significantly. I think that there's this global realization for the importance of clean baseload energy. And I think that the, um, the incoming administration also recognizes that. Uh, on top of that, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, excited and pleased with the excitement that's surrounding uh, the advancement of these small modular reactors. There seems like there are a number of companies around the world that are focused on the small modular reactor technology. Uh, and then you, you couple that with the issues of the supply imbalance. Uh, I think TradeTech uh, indicated it in 2020 because of supply disruptions and low prices there was a delta between demand and newly produced uranium about 70 million pounds. So you combine all those together and I think it looks bright for the uranium sector going forward.
0: And Mark, where are we at at energy fuels? Can you maybe just speak to the current, because it's been a while since we've chatted, but there's been some changes uh, as far as cash and debt, but where are we today as far as cash on hand, the debt outstanding and the current capital structure?
1: Yeah. Well, we, we, we don't have any debt and we, we don't plan to secure any additional debt unless we have line of sight to cash flow generation activities. We still contain or, or carry about a $45 million cash working capital, which includes inventories um, as far as working capital. So that's a, we take a very strong position there. And that's that's kind of a hallmark of our company is we we don't like to get uh, uh, down on our cash or working capital. So we have a a very strong balance sheet and we plan to continue to have a very strong balance sheet. And um, so we're very well positioned as the market improves, whether
0: it be uranium or rare earths or vanadium. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about those segments in just a moment with your guys' cash on hand and inventories and the potential for cash flows in 2021 do you guys expect to raise capital in 2021
1: well that's a good question um i mean at this point in time we we don't have any uh immediate plans to um raise any substantial capital but that could change uh we you know, we do have an ATM, um, which which is is very helpful and, and very low cost of capital for what I call kind of maintenance capital. But you know, depending on uh, how the uranium reserve is rolled out, and depending on how we progress with the rare earths, again that could change things pretty dramatically. So uh, I'm never gonna I'm not gonna say never, but uh, at the same time we just have to see how the the year unfolds.
0: Very well. And speaking of the uranium reserve, the, the current bill is $75 million per year to that reserve. Is there any insight on where you see those uh, solicitations coming out? What agency will be handling those? If it's a price-only proposal, you know, kind of sealed bid, a technical proposal, do you see any indication on how they're planning on doing that?
1: Well, Andrew, it's, it's fairly short on details. I think that the Department of Energy will be the main agency involved with the reserve uh, the 75 million is about half of the 150 million that was recommended by the nuclear fuel working group so we, we think there's there's scope to increase that amount uh, perhaps next year but it, it is a step in the right direction uh we have to get more details I, and i think that one of the things that um, i think is key is the uranium reserve has is, is not been appropriated uh, to support 10 different companies. It, it's focused on um, two or three companies max, um, they should be companies with proven track record of production, uh, and that should be focused on uh, companies that have existing infrastructure because there's more than enough infrastructure right now to produce uranium uh, that could be receive the benefits of the reserve. So uh but again we we'll, we we'll, we'll have to wait for the details but but I think guiding principle here and I think it was included in the nuclear fuel working group is it's not meant to support uh the entire industry just focused on the core of the industry uh, going
0: forward. Do you think that the uh, the agency that'll be doing the procurement um do you think that they'll be sending out invites to the known companies or do you expect you guys will have to keep an eye on sam.gov for the opportunities to come out any indication on that do you think it'll probably be second half 2021 before this really starts going
1: again as i said short on details the the u.s government has a long history of purchasing uranium Um, most of it was purchased under buying schedules that went for several decades It was very successful and basically the government just set a price that they're willing to purchase uranium and those that could, could supply uranium could could uh, step up and supply the uranium. So um, our, our personal preference as energy fuels is, is just do it the way that they did it for several decades, uh, a supply agreement. So not everybody agrees on that. Um, but uh, for example, you know, we already have inventories uh, that we produced um, over the last couple of years and we think that that should be certainly um, available for um, fulfilling part of the reserve. You know, even if it's um, they start, uh, you know, trying to purchase uranium in 2021, it's going to be very difficult for just about any of the companies to supply uh, uranium produced in 2021. So, you know, companies that have, have produced uranium in the last few years uh you know during the time that you know section 232 and the nuclear Fuel working group were studying this um in my opinion should should be able to uh, sell some of that product into
0: the reserve mark if it is a competitive bid process uh do you guys believe you guys are in the best position to potentially get an award
1: yeah i mean competitive bid you, you can define that in different ways there there are some people that that push hard on the competitive bid but but some of those people are the unproven producers, and and uh, they don't know what their costs are, and 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 so you got to be careful here. the 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 focus of this reserve should be on long term sustainable uh, production from those that are uh, involved with with any of the benefits from the reserve. So um, there are a number of companies that 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 have uh, expectations of their production costs, which are probably about Fifty percent or seventy five percent of what their actual fully loaded costs are going to be, so going to have to be very careful with that,
0: yeah, it's a bit silly that there's a few out there that still don't know where their costs are. It's laughable really, and I'm in favor of technical capabilities, not just price, best value derives from that, not necessarily just sealed low bid. yeah, let's see what happens. It'll be interesting to see what they do and how they do it. Let's move on here, if you would. Would you update on your current ownership level in the shares of energy fuels? And as you've seen throughout 2020, quite a bit of volatile price movements in the share price. Did you make any on-market purchases uh, during 2020?
1: Yeah, my current uh, position is building. I believe I currently have somewhere in the order of about 500,000 shares um, that are in different stages, either vested or unvested. Um, That is building because I basically have certain KPIs and based on my performance, the the company uh, awards me shares every year. Um, So that's building. I did make uh, some purchases this year. I I think it was somewhere in the order of twenty, twenty five thousand dollars. I don't remember exactly, Andrew, but um, I have purchased shares and I'm certainly a firm believer of seeing management purchase shares and and, a number of the executives in the company. Purchase shares. I think, and again, I'm just going off the top of my head, there probably were uh, 10 uh, uh, either board members or uh, officers or insiders that purchased shares in 2020.
0: Let's talk about the potential for cash flow next year. You know, as you guys have worked through a couple different kinks with Vanadium, et cetera, there's been a cash flow potential that has really been hoped for over the last couple of years. You know, obviously with vanadium first, uh, but the market pricing didn't necessarily agree at the time. Now there is more potential for rare earth processing and cleanup contracts. What revenues can reasonably be expected in 2021? And with the existing G&A and C&M costs, can the company potentially break even in 2021? The most likely revenue and, and, and very likely revenue
1: is going to be surrounding uh, the mill uh in 2021 and the revenue from um the sale of uh, rare earth carbonates uh and some of the alternate feed uh, processing and the, the land cleanup that uh is currently ongoing with one project we have that's in new mexico so we believe that the the mill uh with with currently what is uh basically either signed up or very close to being signed up will be cash neutral the mill itself That hopefully will build um, with uh, other sources of of feed for the mill, um, monazite feeds, and other alternate feed or cleanup opportunities. As far as other revenue, um, the potential, uh, if we can monetize some of our inventories, and we have around 700,000 pounds of inventories, if we can monetize that into the reserve at a premium, currently our uranium is on the books around. $23, $24 23 $24 per pound, we can generate revenue. We've got about $20 million at current prices of uranium. We have about $10 million at current prices of vanadium. Uh, same thing if you get a price of um, uh, flex up uh, in either the uranium or vanadium prices. Uh, and then on top of that, um, if the price of uranium is high enough or the reserve supports it, we can go back into production at uh, you know, one or two of our main assets. Um, So, you know, in in 2021, um, we will not, uh, at least at this point in time, uh, be cash positive unless we can monetize um, some of our inventories, but we're certainly working towards becoming cash positive, uh, I believe probably in, uh, you know, 2022 or so. Uh, but that can change, and as I said, if you looked at our inventory, if we're able to sell uh, our inventories at a, at a premium, we could easily uh, be cash positive if that eventuates.
0: Well, Mark, we want you to stay hungry, lean and mean, so let's, uh, let's keep that going and let's get that cash flow potential up and rolling there. Um, I know it's been a long wait and you guys are definitely making progress on that front and it would be nice to see more progress in 2021 on that front. Uh, recent news, um, there's a deal with Chimers company. How much per ton are you paying for the Chimers ore, and what are your expected processing total costs?
1: Well, Andrew, I'm not going to get into the details of our costs. Uh, the Chemer's agreement was uh, a very significant, not just for us, but for the rare earths industry as a whole, because it is the first uh, commercial monazite supply agreement uh, in the United States for processing monazite ores, uh, I can say that it's it's very competitively priced. Uh, we're very pleased with the relationship that we're establishing with Kimores. It's a three-year agreement. It is basically a take-or-pay agreement, uh, showing the confidence we have in our ability to to produce the our rare earth carbonate uh it's 2500 short tons per year minimum quantities we believe that can be flexed up over time and so we're looking forward to flexing it up and it also is some of the first is is the first monazite that i know that was going to china and um it is now um going to be coming to white mesa so it's a it's a first and we think we can build on that with other monocyte producers if there's another option outside of china for processing of monocyte ores that contain a substantial amount of uranium in them. So the, the the first step with with kimors, as I said, we believe it will basically put us in a position to be cash neutral uh, at the uh, at the White Mesa mill. We need more feed, and we hope to ramp that up, you know, somewhere in the order of uh, four to five times or greater. Uh, in the next year or two. But but the most significant thing about the Comores Agreement is that the contained rare earths in that agreement uh, is approximately 10% of the United States requirements for rare earths. And um, we think that has got a lot of market attention. And we also think that the fact that this is probably the first rare earth carbon that has been produced in over 20 years in the United States it's a very significant step forward in the rare earth space.
0: And Mark, maybe you can give us some hint on expected processing total costs and in addition to that, what's the benchmark pricing that that people can expect to use for the processing level of the finished goods that you plan on selling out of White Mesa and what is that current price? I believe it's in kilograms if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah. Well, I believe we're gonna be world competitive. And and the main reason we'll be world competitive is monazite is the best source of rare earths out there in the world. Uh, It's recognized as the best source. And I think that we're solving an issue with regard to being able to process monazite, which nobody else has been able to do. When it comes to pricing, you can go to some of the price bulletins and and, and see what the various Pricings are, at least global prices are. Um, At this point in time, we're only going through the production of carbonates. We don't have the ability to go to the next step, which is separation. So the material, if we're going to sell it, has to go outside of the United States to either Europe or to China for processing. Um, That is an inefficient step because you have to transport the material and then it has to be processed at other sites. Um, We believe that it is crucial and and very crucial for the company to be in a position to go to the next step of separation in the next couple years. And that is in our plans. And with that extra step, as as I said, I'm going to talk in generalities here, Andrew. We're basically break even to make a carbonate and and on uh, selling that uh, into other markets. But if we go to the separation phase, I believe we can make very reasonable margins that are world competitive. And that's all I'm gonna say at this point in time. But as I said, this, this Comores Agreement is a very important first step, but it is by no means
0: the end of the steps that we're planning to take. Okay, once it's sold and so forth, you guys will obviously be displaying your, your costs at that time and also sales prices in your uh, filings, I assume, correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. And,
1: and and as I said, I, I just want to be a little careful on, on quoting costs, but but it is it is significant enough to make the mill break even or in that order. Um, but it turns very quickly with quantity. When you increase the quantity by say double or triple, um, it all starts um making a lot more economic sense, but you really have to separate um In the United States, to to get rid of the shipping of the concentrate to some faraway place, and get the economics scale. So it's 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 a it's a step in the right direction. It's a a very important step. And anyone in the rare earth business that understands the rare earth business understands that the steps that we've made and taken and how quickly we've done it uh, is is remarkable. It's just just remarkable. But as I said, I, I believe that um, in, instead of some of the other sources of rare earths, like bassinite, that monazite is going to be um, the, the game changer for rare earth production in the world going forward. And so, sites like our site in China are going to be in the best position to have the lowest cost possible going forward.
0: Agreed. And and certainly the higher volume and the profile of that is definitely more economical. You mentioned the separation, you know, eliminating that really silly supply chain that's existing right now and efficient. If you guys do move into separation, what do you think the time frame is and any idea on rough capital cost to do so at White Mesa?
1: Well, we think we can move into the separation step quite quickly in the next two to three years. We really have to, to, to make sure that we have more feed than just what we're currently getting from Camores. So when we get two or three times, say, the equivalent of the current agreement with Camores, we will move towards separation. We think that White Mesa is um, uh, very attractive, not just from an operating cost perspective, but also from a capital cost perspective. We're able to utilize a lot of the existing infrastructure uh, going forward and currently. Uh, matter of fact, right now to make carbonate, we're using almost 100%, close to 100% of existing infrastructure. Uh, our estimates are are not engineered estimates, but we think we can probably uh, build a very substantial separation facility for in the order of 100 million dollars, which would be much lower than others. Uh, and we'll also look at metals and alloys in um, due course. So we think that when other companies are spending you know, one to one and a half billion dollars for infrastructure, that White Mesa's capital cost strike rate is going to be just a fraction of that. And that's another reason I'm very confident about saying that we will be very competitive in the world when it comes to cost of production.
0: Mark, there was an article from a local San Juan County group about potential challenges to the rare earth processing and that a license amendment might be needed from the state of Utah. What's the status on this? And does the argument have any merit?
1: Well, I don't think the argument has any merit. And I believe that um, the state of Utah believes that we do not need a license amendment for the rare earth processing of carbonate. And I think they're behind us on that because we're first and foremost processing this monazite ore feeds for its uranium, the uranium content Uh, is uh, about the same grades as what we typically mine in the in the region and we can process that economically for the uranium so the state of utah uh, believes and and we concur uh, that is a uranium processing plant so if we can process uh, these monocyte uh, uranium ores we have all the permits we need to do that at least that first step so so we're very confident that um uh, we have all uh, the permits required to uh, continue on with this rare earth program. And, you know, we'll just take it a step at a time from there. But uh, we're, we're not worried about uh, there being any any validity in a challenge uh, of the facility at this time.
0: Yeah, I think the state of Utah still has some sanity. And as you know, you can't satisfy everybody. There's always someone who has a problem with anything that you do.
1: Well, something else, Andrew, I want to comment on is um you know where do the environmental groups stop you know and we here we are talking about being a, a a leader in rare earth production in the united states which which the products generate um you know magnets high efficiency magnets for evs for wind generators um you know look at all the positives that the ability to produce uranium and rare earths at the white mesa mill um, can deliver to not just the United States, but to the world. So you got to kind of ask yourself sometimes when when people keep challenging everything, all the good that you do, uh, what is their agenda? Because I don't believe it's for uh, basically improving the environment.
0: Yeah. Well, look, hypocrisy has no limits. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I want to bring out a, a point about White Mesa. I think people have struggled to value it. Even I would say we've been conservative in in our thought process regarding the valuation and the strategic importance of White Mesa. And Really, I got to be honest, the balance sheet value doesn't look right either. But can you talk about the strategic importance of White Mesa, how you might consider it to be valued? And then there's a substantial amount of goodwill in White Mesa. Can you just talk about that?
1: Well, it, look, it is hard to value. Um, I mean, if you look at replacement value, it would probably be three to $400 million, uh, assuming you had the, the, the permits uh, and the ability to to build a new facility uh, similar to White Mesa. But it, it's, it's worth, really worth a lot more than that. And, and, and the main reason it's worth a lot more than that is the fact how unique the facility is. I mean, having the permits for a conventional mill in itself uh, you know, it's almost impossible to replicate in the United States uh, today. Uh, very difficult, anyways. And having the fact that it's the only conventional um, uranium mill, the only uh, conventional vanadium facility, and now has the ability uh, to produce these rare earth carbonates, and perhaps going further downstream, uh, it's really become the critical mineral hub. So. So, how do you value a critical mineral hub that does things that nobody else can do? But the replacement value, uh, 30 or 300 to 400 million, as I indicated. As we continue to progress in the rare earth space, um, you know that may become um, you know larger with with some of the investments that we would uh, put back into the facility. But I, I think it is very difficult to value, and I agree with you. I understand why some people have difficulty doing
0: so. Yeah, it's a good asset and it's in a good location. I mean, the state of Utah, uh, in my opinion, is is one of maybe five or six, uh, maybe seven states that, uh, that have some remaining sanity in the U.S. And it's definitely in a good jurisdiction. So good on you. It's a good asset. Virginia Energy, you guys still have a shareholding there, Mark. Are you keeping in touch with Management One? And do you guys intend to continue to hold that stake? It's not high on the priority list,
1: Virginia Energy, that was acquired before I came back to work for the company, uh, but it is there. We, we really haven't given a lot of thought recently. I know there are other companies that have expressed some interest in perhaps uh, purchasing Virginia Energy. It's a it's a very good deposit. It's just in Virginia, and that's the unfortunate aspect of it. So yeah, we haven't given a lot of attention, Andrew, but um, you know, we will in due course. But right now, it's it's not high on the priority list.
0: Yeah, it's an optionality play and certainly it's something that uh, will get attention in later uh, cycle stages. Briefly, just to wrap up on the rare earth side, Mark, I speak to what your guys' uh, goals are for the rare earth segment in 2021. And when can investors expect notable results coming out of this in 2021?
1: Look at 2021 is going to be a very important year for us with rare earths. Uh, as I mentioned, this initial supply agreement represents approximately 10% of the U.S. requirements. Uh, it is my goal to to and target um, to to push uh, the the production of rare earths at the White Mesa Mill maybe upwards of uh, five six times that uh, to be able to be in a position in the next few years to supply in the order of 50 percent or greater of the United States rare Earth. So, you know, watch this space, you know, we're actively out uh, talking to a number of monocyte producers and other potential off takers for separation or separation services. Uh, So it's very, very active right now. And uh, we also will be talking to a number of end users in 2021, the likes of of Tesla and Ford, General Motors, Siemens, and uh, try to get on their radar screen as a viable and and emerging source of rare earth products uh, in the next few years. So we're very excited about that. So I think that investors should view us as uh, a rare earth, um, but first and foremost, a uranium production company with our long history there, but emerging as a very significant player of rare earths not just in the United States, but in the world. And the fact that we've had such a a, a reputable uh, group of uh, advisors join us like uh, Constantine Karianopoulos, probably the most uh, successful person in the rare earth business in the entire world, uh, is still working closely with us. We have Jack Lifton and Barack O'Kelly who also has about 35 years of processing experience with rare earths at Mountain Pass. We are in an excellent position and we're building to that team. We are building to the team with some of the world's most foremost experts for going into separation metals and alloys. We are building this team out so no one can tell me or us that we do not have the ability to make a big splash here in the rare earth space.
0: Well, I suspect the ChemWars agreement is really the, uh, the start of this. and. We've seen that pick-and-shovel supply announcements with companies like Tesla can really cause shares to explode. Um, we've seen that uh, earlier this year with some other deals that were announced. Mark, there's been apples-to-bananas comparisons about the G&A costs um, and production profiles of Paladin versus energy fuels. Now, as you are well aware of Langer Heinrich having operated it, and of course, uh, you know the remaining Paladin assets that haven't gone to others during the partial decommissioning of the company that's occurred over the last few years. Comments on the potential of these assets and the respective teams behind both Paladin and Energy Fuels.
1: Well, I haven't. Um, I don't know the current team that's left at Paladin. As you know, I ran, I was in charge of Langer Heinrich and Caleb Kara for about five-year period in that 2011 to 2015 period. So I, I don't know what the current status is of those assets. They sold off at Kayla Kara. Langer Heinrich is still there. A lot of Langer Heinrich has been mined out. A lot of the good areas have been mined out, and I don't think people fully appreciate that. It is a good asset, and it's in a great location. Namibia is a great place to do business. Uh, great people in Namibia. So I have very fond memories of my time with Paladin and working with John Borshoff. So um, yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of they're, they're difficult to compare, but you know the difference between you know Paladin and us is really they're a single asset company where we are have multiple assets and we cover not just the uranium, the vanadium, and now the rare earths. So. You know, it's very difficult, Andrew, to to make a, you know, well, here's Paladin, here's us. Um, You know, we're very different. Um, I I do want to say this, is that um, I think you know I'm an Australian citizen as well, and I could have stayed in Australia very easily uh, for the future and, and the uranium business in Australia. And I came back to the United States for the specific opportunity of becoming CEO of Energy Fuels. I only came back for one reason and that is, I believe that energy fuels was the best vehicle in the uranium space Um, at this point in time. This is going back four or five years ago and I'm still a believer of why I made that decision as the right decision. So I believe, you know, there are other good vehicles out there in the world and I'm not saying that there aren't but I thought that energy fuels was a very unique uh, vehicle uh and it has not disappointed me at all since my return
0: very well i appreciate that paul goranson left the company and earlier in 2020 and quickly joined uh encore energy which has made some news uh and some moves in uh 2020 and is now really established as a developer explorer stage company now um thoughts on paul's departure and his potential at encore
1: I'm a very good friend with Paul and we have a very good relationship with him and I congratulate him on his his new role with Encore. We've looked at um, and made some very difficult decisions uh, over the course of last year, focusing on streamlining uh, the fact that the business was changing um, somewhat with the addition of the rare earths. Uh, There's some succession um, considerations there but uh, Paul and I have an excellent relationship. I have a huge amount of respect for Paul, and as I said, I'm I'm very pleased that uh, he's CEO of Encore, and I wish him well. Uh, but we do uh, continue to talk on a fairly routine basis, and uh, we're very good friends. So, so look, I think that when you're when you're looking at um, uh, any of these companies, you 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 have to be dynamic with what's evolving over time. Uh, but at the same time, I'm trying to uh, you know, provide a succession plan for the the, the, the numerous uh, young professionals in the group, giving them opportunities. And I just have to look at that picture holistically uh, as we go forward. So, um, you know, good luck to Paul. And I look forward
0: to my long friendship and relationship with Paul. Paul's a good man and good on you guys both because I know he's been adamant about this as well as some other folks, including yourself. But The wisdom transfer that needs to take place in this industry um, is very, very important. And there's not a lot of good people that are capable of of carrying the torch along. And uh, as we all get older, um, I think that continues to be important and is a key piece. So I appreciate your guys' efforts on that front to mentor and and bring in uh, quality talent, which is quite frankly lacking significantly in the entire natural resource sector. As some of these uh, talented management teams age, Just briefly on the ISR operations for a moment, Mark, how does this slot in? And when the price is right, what is the first asset to restart on the uranium side? And what is the priority sequence of operations ramp up for the company, including the ISR portions?
1: Our best uh, uranium production asset is Canyon. Uh, It's the lowest cost and the quickest to to market in terms of quantity and, and cost of production but uh, you know followed by uh, Alta Mesa and um, Nichols Ranch. So you know there's a lot of um, things that would come into the decision what to start restart and win and, and does it require one project or two projects or three projects. You, you want to run these projects at a fairly uh, reasonable scale to get the economics of scale. So it depends on you know what the opportunity is, how much uranium you're going to require per year, and then go from there. So we pretty much will back build based on the requirements, but you can kind of think in terms of energy fuels having the capability uh, to get up to, if the market is there, uh, a couple million pounds uh, quite quickly in the next couple of years, but we can move quicker, faster than others because we've spent more money on a lot of our assets. A lot of people will, if, if they're lucky enough to have an asset and most aren't lucky enough to have an asset, you have to spend some money to keep these things in good standing, and we have kept our projects in good standing. So, um, as I said, it's it's hard to say what's coming on first without knowing uh, exactly what the requirements will be and what the pricing will be.
0: Understood. That makes sense. Mark, we have another question that came in and follow with me here for a moment. Uh, First, for our audience, you can use CDAR to look up the filing history to understand the historic events. But October, 2013, the company did a one for 50 share consolidation. In March, 2007, it had about 47 million shares outstanding between then and 2013. Three large transactions took place for Titan Uranium, Strathmore Asset Purchase, And, of course, the big one, the Denison merger, resulting in about 700 million shares being issued for those uh, various assets through that time period. And then there were about 948 million shares out prior to the consolidation in 2013. Then you factor in the events uh, since and, of course, the continuing dilution through the bear market. And I think this question may have come from the UR Energy slide deck that essentially has some claims about dilution for US peers, not factoring in some of that dilution had provided key value add assets that the company has today, like White Mesa. If my math is correct, the company had about a 12 billion market cap Canadian at some point during 2007. Maybe you can just comment on this and what are your thoughts on the share structure during this period and the company potential during this cycle?
1: Pointed out correctly, a lot of the dilution with energy fuels, if you go back, uh, Energy Fields was just a a, a name and a very small company and it grew its position by acquisition so there was a, a lot of dilution when you look at the um the acquisition of the Denison assets and some of these other assets so um, yeah and, and and that was a, a big source of the the initial dilution of the company now over the last couple of years um we've taken a position uh to continue to have a strong balance sheet and pay down our debt now that is a position that a lot of other companies have not taken okay but at the same time we've been out there trying to do things that are company changers in terms of uh you know things that we had in our control to try to make uh, game-changing decisions that do cost money now it's real easy to sit at home and do nothing with some of these companies, not spend any money on drilling, just pay overheads and have low dilution and low burn rate. We didn't take that approach. We continued to do value add and, and Andrew, you know, you, you certainly remember where we went into Vanadium production. We did that very successfully. We, we, we delivered what we said we'd do. Uh, our costs were quite reasonable and below what we had expected, but the market didn't support it. So, that was a game-changing exercise. That we spent some money on, we didn't, you know, we didn't get burned on it in a huge way, but we we, we did get burned to a certain extent. Now at the same time, Rare Earth is another example where we're taking the company in what we believe is a game-changing direction while still maintaining our core assets. That costs money. Other people haven't done a lot of anything, so you know we're we're, we're a different company and. I also think you're aware of when, in particularly my past with Paladin, I saw what happens when you get over leveraged on debt and you're not able to meet those requirements. And that is a taste that I've, I've, I've taken with me uh, to energy fuels to make sure that we maintain a strong balance sheet because even though we're aggressive, we're not reckless. So I think that's a differentiator, but I think that the the slides that people provide that say oh look at energy fuels is just a dilution machine you have to go back to the origin of energy fuels with all those acquisitions and the position it put us in right today and going forward i also want to say that we have had the best share performance this year of any of the north american uranium companies and we also now have the rare earth so You know, we spent money for the future, and that's the way people need to look at dilution. But we are conscious of it. Obviously, we're very conscious of it. We want to limit dilution as much as possible. But we are working on the optionality of not just uranium space, but all these other aspects of our business plan.
0: Yeah, lots of stuff there to cover, Mark, and good points. And I would just point out that there's been dilutive value creation that's happened, that is actually you know, attributable asset improvement versus uh, dilution for the sake of a paycheck and also asset acquisitions for the sake of acquisition, marginal asset. They have some optionality, et cetera, but I think that there's a very fine line to how you approach that. And then to the over-leveraging of Paladin at the time, we get a lot of nasty emails about that, particularly back towards Mr. Borzhoff. You know, The fact is, is I don't know if people don't have their heads straight, but when you look at that, most companies lost 90% of their value from 2011 or whatever, Fukushima, all the way till 2016. So 90% loss versus a bankruptcy to me is a rounding error. I think people got to pay attention to the cyclicality of the sector, one, and the fact that this type of activity and this type of overleveraging will happen again. You want to be on the right side of the trade. And so, you know, any comments on that are welcome, but I think that that's also a key point that you guys have also acquired assets through these years. And again, I encourage the audience, go back and look up energy fuels on CDAR and you'll get uh, decades of filings and you can spend the next three, four weeks going through them. I encourage people to do that because that's what we've done. Any comments there before we move on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been in this space for 45 years and I've seen the cycles in this space and I've seen how brutal they are um, if you're not prepared for uh, you know, an, an uptick and a downtick. You gotta manage the upside and you gotta manage the downside. Uh, the Paladin uh, experience uh, was very unfortunate. John Borshaw is a very good friend of mine. That is the only company that basically built new projects and, and, and did material production. We were producing around nine million pounds per year at the time i was there and that was about double the entire production in the united states two times the u.s production and it costs money and it costs new capital and it wasn't free and it wasn't cheap so look i have a healthy respect on looking for sustainability but also not gambling all the shareholders money um, when it comes to over leveraging so i'm going to try to strike that balance and i've literally uh, look back on the five or six uh, world-leading entrepreneurs that I've worked with in the uranium space. And I try to take the very best that i learned from them, and I also try to take the things and the mistakes they've made and try to put energy fuels in the position to have a long-term sustainable strategy without putting the shareholders at undue risk when you have ability to manage that risk
0: just remind the audience again, everybody was a uranium bull in 2007. I mean, everybody couldn't see the what would ultimately become oversupplied market. And it's not just uranium, it's copper, it's gold, it's everything else. It's zinc, it's the same thing, rinse and repeat. And once you understand that, all you have to really get is how to get on the right side of the uptrend and the right side of the cycle. The rest of it's irrelevant because trust me, the pain is going to happen again. We saw you know, Kinross offloads gold assets that were amazing during a bear market because they needed cash. Now those assets are in other companies' hands producing lots of free cash flow. It's the same thing over and over and over. And so, you know, the audience has got to get that. And to your other comment, back to the Vanadium, I suspect at this point you have or or are in process of setting up a reasonably easy way to offload the Vanadium inventory that you guys have built when the price is right. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So the vanadium delivery made sense. You guys just haven't realized the sale yet, but the price will move again. And you guys, I suspect, have a way to pull the trigger and exit out of that at a nice profit when the time comes. Lastly, just before we wrap up, you brought up another question that came to mind as you were talking mergers and acquisitions within the U S if you'd like to speak globally, certainly welcome to, but, uh, What's your view on M&A in the U.S., and do you think that's something that should be looked at today versus later stage in the cycle?
1: Well, look, I'm never going to say never that we won't consider uh, acquisition of other companies in the United States. But I also have to say that I think our company is asset rich, and you'd be aware that we've we've been working on divesting um, some non-core assets that we have um, that we just don't have time to focus on. And when I say non-core, they're non core for us, but frankly, they're better than probably 60, 70% of the assets that are out there in the United States that, that people have. They have a, a, a production history. They have cost structures that are equal or lower than a number of other companies that are counting low cost. Um, and they're permitted and they're ready to go. And we'll offer those with, with the milling agreement, but we just don't have time to focus on it. So. So right now, um, one of our issues, Andrew, is just pure bandwidth. And we only have um, a certain amount of things that we can focus on, like the existing assets or core assets, the the uranium, uh, but uh, the rare earth uh, sector that we're focusing on and some of the other things like the land cleanup and vanadium, and we just don't have the bandwidth to think bigger at this point in time. Now that could change, but we've also been uh, cognizant of the fact that if you acquire another company that is also negative cash flowing, that just adds to the negative cash flow unless the market is ready to go back into production and it is quality assets. So again, it's a balance you have to look at holistically. We're certainly not short on assets right now, and we got a lot on. And I, I'd rather do a few things very well than do a lot of things poorly, and and make sure we give the proper attention to the exciting um, assets that we we currently
0: own, 100%. Yeah, a lot of points, a lot of factors to it, and it's walking a fine line. So I agree. You guys are, in our view, the best positioned company from a production-ready standpoint, producer-stage company in the U.S. Obviously, there's other options for folks looking for leverage with explorers, et cetera. But I think Energy Fuels has got the king position in the U.S. Well, wrapping up, Mark, uh, why should potential new investors consider shares at these levels. The company has about a 600 million market cap US. What would you say to them at this point?
1: Well, we have had a nice rebound. Um, if you you, you, you you have to almost kind of split us a bit. If you look at the rare earth side of the business, you've got um, Mountain Pass. It has a market cap of north of $5 billion uh, US. If you look at Linus uh, in Australia, uh an established rare earth producer it's got a market cap of three billion dollars us um so on the rare earth um side of the equation you know if we're at say 500 million dollars and we're we're building the story rapidly with the uh business plan of starting off with monazite known to be the lowest cost best source of rare earths in the world and we're doing what china is but in the united states um you know that should give people a belief that there is a lot of room to keep going in the, the rare earth space for our company and then if you look at the uranium side of things and you look at us with regard to our peers um, and, and and you look at our valuation even at that five or six hundred million dollars where some of our peers at you know 350 400 or whatever um, and you look at the assets we have and the history we have and the fact that we've produced a third of the U.S. uranium over the last 15 years, uh, you can come up with an equation that says that we are still undervalued and uh, we have a lot of upside and we have more upside than our our peers that don't really exist, as I said, because they don't do both things. But uh, that's the the argument for investing in energy fuels today for the future. We are effectively focused on those two spaces, first and foremost, uranium company but we have huge growth opportunity
0: in both. Yeah, and the valuation uh, can certainly climb from here and if anybody's done, Some basic math and some basic net present value work, they can find out that uh, it's pretty obvious that things can move higher and good performance and uh, moving forward here and looking forward to seeing uh, what the company can generate and do in 2021 as you guys continue to grow the company. And who knows, maybe you guys a balloon in comparison to your U.S. uranium peers uh, to where the rest of the sector in the U.S. looks quite small. Well, Mark, any other comments before we go? And I just want to give an opportunity here, a uh, best way for the folks to reach out to the company.
1: I'm always open for a phone call if somebody wants to call me directly. You know, as as I just explained, I think that both aspects of the company, not even including the vanadium, are, are, are billion-dollar opportunities, both sides of the rare earth and the, and the uranium, so lots of room to grow. Um, you know, I've got, and you know this, Andrew. I've got a lot of experience in this business, and I'm trying to deploy that experience in a, in a very focused and smart way to create value for shareholders. But I, this is this is uh, probably uh, one of the most exciting times in my entire career, and I've, I'm committed to generating substantial value for all those that want to come along on the ride. So let's watch. 2021 as it unfolds. I think it's going to be a very
0: exciting year for everyone. Mark, always a pleasure. Keep up the efforts and best of luck in 2021. Thank you, Andrew. My pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you.